Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. It's 30 with Murdy with your host, Sweeney Murdy. And welcome back to another edition of 30 with Murdy. Joining me this week is Bob Clappish, co-author of the new book, Inside the Empire, The True Power Behind the New York Yankees, co-author with Paul Solotaroff. It's available now everywhere you get books from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. And uh, I got a chance to read it on the uh, really in the final week of spring training and on the plane ride home leading up to the season. So a good primer for the season for me and hopefully something you'll enjoy. It was an inside look at the 2018 Yankees season, and we'll talk to Bob about it now. Clap, first of all, thanks for uh, giving us a couple of minutes here. Congratulations on the book. How did the whole project really begin and come about, and how did you find it when it was done compared to what you thought going in? Well, Paul and I have been friends for many years, you know, just lunch friends. So we go out every once in a while for a burger to talk about the Yankees. We both we both love baseball. So, you know, we started kicking around the idea of doing a book about the Yankees, you know, merging our two our two writing styles, our two experiences in journalism. He's one of the big wigs at Rolling Stone, and he'd always read me in the New York Post and Daily News. I mean, he knew I was a clubhouse fixture. And he said, we should put our brains together and come up with a book. And we kind of thought that 2019 was going to be the year that the Yankees would blossom, would blossom. They would be exploding on the American League East, that all the young kids would be maturing at the same time, and this turnaround would turn them into monsters in the American League. But 2017 happens. They get to within a game of the World Series. Then they pick up, they acquire Giancarlo Stanton last January, and there's this sudden surge in interest and expectations in this club, if you remember. He sold, the Yankees sold a half a million tickets just in January alone, yeah. right after Stanton came from the Marlins. And Paul and I said, you know what? If we wait until 2019, we're going to be a year late on this book. Let's do it now. So we drafted a killer proposal about how the Yankees were the new Beatles, mm-hmm. you know, the young celebrities, like you know, getting off the jetway at Idlewild in 1964. Yeah. That's what we were dealing with, the, the, the arrival of the new, new-look Yankees. And... Fortunately, we had all five publishing houses in New York bidding on it. It's kind of cool to be a free agent, yeah, yeah. you know, in any mm-hmm. business. But uh, in this case, we landed with a with a great house with Houghton Mifflin, and we launched this book as a diary of the 2018 season, but sitting atop a foundation of how the Yankees had pulled this off, how they had changed from George Steinbrenner's Yankees to Brian Cashman's Yankees, and how the business model looks nothing like it used to 15 years ago or 20 years ago and how Cashman was able to do that without losing without breaking it down he didn't have to 
turning the Yankees into a last place team like the Red Sox had to and the Cubs had to and the Astros had to they all started from the bottom and the Yankees never did so that's those are the two elements of this book a day by day with this team and a closer look at who this team really is and what the business model is and for that they can thank Brian I wasn't really noticing this until a day ago when we were, I was preparing for this but all of a sudden the word true in the subtitle jumped out to me it's called inside the empire the true power behind the new york yankees why true what does that word mean there because most people don't realize how much brian has to do with what the yankees look like today Uh, we went to brian in january before the book launched and said will you cooperate because this book wouldn't have happened had he not basically pulled the curtain back for us and part of my pitch was look you've known me for 25 years i've known you this long and no one's ever really told your story you've been overshadowed by Derek Jeter by Alex Rodriguez by Joe Torre by George Steinbrenner you're the one who's still here you're still standing and you've never had a losing season that's remarkable in New York you've never been fired everybody gets fired in New York everybody's legacy ends up crashing and burning and you get trashed one way or another no matter how great you are no matter if you're a Hall of Famer sooner or later you get booted out the door unceremoniously yeah. And it's never happened to Brian. And that's the story that needs to be told. He is the true power behind this team. Now, he's a very, very, very modest guy. He agreed to cooperate and give me and Paul access, one-on-one sessions that went on for 60, 90 minutes at a time. And not like the, not like the seven minutes we get in front of the dugout, you know. On that's the usually one answer for Brian Cashman. Right. <laughs> but that's all you get. Yeah, you know, yeah. once a series, maybe, if you're lucky. But three or four times during the year... We were able to really hit bedrock with him. But he insisted there was one there was one stipulation that we spread the credit around. It's not just him. He really doesn't like being praised. It was everybody around him who built up this organization. I want to get into that, but you know, I noticed over the years that he has really given a lot of credit to Hal Steinbrenner. I mean he you know, he came up under George and had plenty of vocal battles with him and he likes telling those stories. He seems in lockstep with Hal Steinbrenner. So over the years, as the Yankees have come up a little bit short in the postseason or even years when they weren't making the postseason very recently, the questions I would get asked and you would get asked is, you know, is are the Yankees going to fire Brian Cashman? You mentioned he survived. I think part of the reason he survived is that he's in lockstep with Hal Steinbrenner. There is no division there. There is no challenging of the philosophies or anything like that, no battle for power. Good or bad, these two guys really do think alike. Yeah, and that's uh, that's a result of both men having been brutalized by George <laughs> for so many years. I mean, they have that in common, and it's almost as if they're half-brothers or yeah. step-brothers. You know, just as a side note, I mean, one of the one of the I thought more colorful and revealing interviews in the book was the one-on-one with Hal Steinbrenner, mm-hmm. in which I say to him, look, I, I started many years ago as the, at the New York Post right out of college, and my job was to cover your father. And I was going up against the heavyweights, the newspaper heavyweights at that time, Murray Chass at the New York Times and Bill Madden at the Daily News, Moss Klein at the New York Star-Ledger. I mean, these guys were cleanup hitters, all of them, and here I am, a rookie, you know, just looking to make contact. And back then, you know, there was no cell phones, there's no no texting, no email. To get George, you had to call and wait yeah. for him to call you back. Mm-hmm. And you didn't even call. There was no office for him. You called American Shipbuilding, and you left a message, and you sat there and waited. And it was, and some days he'd call you, yeah. some days he wouldn't call you. And the days he didn't call you, you had to just pray he didn't call your competition, which he did. He buried me many times. Yeah. 
But when he called you, he just started talking. He didn't say this was George. He didn't say, hello, Bob. He just started talking. It was a very intimidating experience. And I said to Hal, your dad really scared the hell out of me. And he laughed. He goes, scared the hell out of me too. <laughs> yeah. And George and Hal is such a product of that, growing up with, a, with an overbearing, dominating father, domineering father. And he's gone the complete, and because of that, he is a completely the opposite person. He does not want to be on the back page of the post. He doesn't want to motivate by embarrassing or screaming at his players. He's, he'd rather be invisible. He, and that's why he and Brian are, are like in lockstep, why there's this communion between them, because he leaves the decisions to Brian. He trusts Brian, whereas George didn't really trust anybody. He only trusted himself and always hung over your head the, the, the power that he had over you, that he could fire you. How's not that man? Something I thought about, and I've thought about, you know, even while before and while reading this book, you know, I hear from fans who get frustrated at the players they don't spend money on, and they say, "How should sell the team? How should sell the team?" Said, you know, if you sell the team, you're you're going to sell to an owner who has a budget and who doesn't have the same connection that um, that Hal Steinbrenner has to the New York Yankees. I keep saying to myself. The one thing Hal has, even if he's not George, his last name is still Steinbrenner, and he understands and knows what it means to own this team in this city and what the responsibility of that is. Oh, he's very much aware of what of what this of what this legacy means that he's a Steinbrenner and these are the Yankees. There's no question. He's not shrinking from it, but he doesn't want to. He does not want to be on the back pages of the headline. I said of the headlines. I said to him, Dude, "Isn't that any part of you of your DNA?" You want to go down there in the middle of a losing street and start airing people out? And again, he laughed. He goes, well, my mother wants me to do that. She's always said, why don't you say something? And he says, Ma, why don't you say something? Because, you know, that's just the way things were here. But Brian cringes at that. That's not the kind of leadership he wants to work for. That's not how baseball is run anymore. I mean, it's one of the many ways in which the game has evolved. Ownership does not berate players. And how fits that, that new philosophy perfectly. So after reading this, I came, kind of came to this conclusion that I don't know if this is how you intended it or even if you see it this way, but I look at the new core four of the Yankees, and it's in no particular order, Hal Steinbrenner, Brian Cashman, Aaron Boone, and Aaron Judge. Like These are the four guys that make this whole machine go. Is that how you saw it? Yeah, I think probably in that order, although, although even though Hal is at the top of the chain, he is really a silent figure. I mean, very much so. Is Brian's team, as you know, as we've talked about, uh, Aaron Boone. It was is is now the anti Joe Girardi. You know, he is managing this team for the for the same reasons, for the exact reasons that Joe Girardi lost his job. Uh, and there's no question that Aaron Judge is the lead clubhouse leader. He's the face of the team. He's going to be the captain of this team, and he will finish his career in pinstripes. So yes, I think you just hit on the foremost important and influential members of this franchise. Let me take them one at a time. We talked a little about Hal already, and I kind of I made a notation to myself that he feels like George Steinbrenner 4.0, you know, not 2.0. He's been removed enough where he doesn't have all the crazy tendencies, still knows, still knows where the bodies are buried. He just doesn't have all these other uh, things that made George George. Is there something that you learned about Hal that you didn't already know? Uh just how reluctant he was to, to do this you know he was he would have been happy running the hotels in Florida and he got pulled in because there was nobody else George was fading and ultimately when he passed somebody from the family had to do it and Hank just didn't have the temperament 
you know, he was, you know, a little too available to the press, you know, a little too free with his quotes. And the Yankees really wanted to move on from that. They just didn't need a younger version of George. I mean, it just doesn't work in 2012 or 13, which is when he was, you know, gave it a trial run. Mm-hmm. Hal was the more polished, articulate, more restrained, more disciplined version of his brother. But he didn't want to do it. I mean, he he didn't want to be famous. I remember this one one quote of his, which stood out for me. He remembers in the city one day he was walking and he saw Billy Crystal with a parka jacket over his head, sunglasses, head down, just praying that nobody would notice him and ask for an autograph. And Hal thought to himself, "What a terrible life that is mm-hmm. to constantly be afraid of afraid of being noticed." And that's what Hal really didn't want. Whereas his father, George, loved the limelight. He loved it. He enjoyed it. He thrived on it. That was where he got his energy from. But, you know, Hal's shyness is to me is just was the most remarkable thing. I didn't know to what degree that controls his personality. You mentioned how long you've known Brian Cashman. Still, though, in the hours that you spent with him, you must have uncovered something about Brian that you didn't know. Yeah, I had to take that out of the book. I mean, <laughs> really? Yeah, some of the stuff in the book, you know, it's funny. There were so many good quotes. I do realize that, and I've, I've known this about Brian, but having had greater exposure and access to him, how much he's willing to trust those he trusts, I mean, with information and insights and opinions and little anecdotes. Many are, are in the book, but some are not because he requested that. But Brian knows everything. And I'll tell you one thing, the other thing, and that is this is in the book, just how tough he is. What a tough negotiator he is. He's a sweetheart of a guy. He's mm-hmm. fun to talk to. He's gregarious, charismatic. But you can't beat him negotiating. And I think Derek Jeter learned that the hard way in 2010, that Brian, when it comes to business, Brian does not deal in emotion or friendships or nostalgia. There's no soft spot that he has for anybody. It's all numbers. And, again, I think Jeter came up against a really tough cookie in 2010. Did not end well for Derek, yeah. and those two never forgave each other. You talked about how Aaron Boone is the opposite of Joe Girardi. Now, uh, having known Boone since he was a player, very friendly guy, but he seems a tough nut to crack. And even in the conversations that I think that you had with him um, that, are, that are part of the book, I came away thinking that you didn't quite get to the essence of who he is, uh, maybe because, because he didn't necessarily want to do that. And I wasn't sure that you were as convinced – and Paul, your co-author, that you were as convinced that he is the absolute right man for this job and this team as much as Brian Cashman is. Is that fair? Uh, Brian is very sold on him. Mm-hmm. I think I think Aaron Boone is absolutely the right manager for this team between April and September. Mm-hmm. You know, over the course of six months, where everybody's in each other's faces and they're each other's living rooms for you know 162 games, you have to get along with your manager. You can't think your manager is out of touch. You can't think your manager is stiff. You can't think your manager. You are counting down the days till he gets fired. I mean, th- that does happen in other clubhouses, and unfortunately for Joe Girardi, he was reaching that point. His players had there was this disconnect between the players and Girardi, which doomed him. Even with that great finish in 2017, he was not coming back. The Yankees, and I'm talking about Brian Cashman in particular, decided it was time for the pendulum to swing the other way. Whereas Girardi was the right guy after Joe Torre because he was efficient, hardworking, dedicated. Um, but that message. The arc of that message had had reached its conclusion by 2017. The, the Yankees needed somebody who was more in touch with his players, who 
saw the same movies as his players, played the same video games, uh, was just a warmer guy who could inspire trust. Boone has that. Maybe not with the, with the press so much. I mean, he's not going to put his arm around you, but he's better at that part of his job than Girardi. Whereas Joe never once, I don't even know if I've ever heard Joe tell an anecdote. In, in the 10 years he was here, I don't know if he ever shared anything about himself personally. Boone is much closer to what, Gir- what Joe Torre was at the beginning than Girardi was. So he was the right guy. Now, the real question is, does this formula work in October? Mm-hmm. It worked for Alex Cora last year, did not work for the Yankees. So this is a work in progress. Boone says he's learning as he goes along. But there's no question now he's got to take it to the next level. Aaron Judge is the new Derek Jeter, the face of the Yankees. I keep thinking back to something Mike Messina told me. It was back in 2003. Derek Jeter had just missed six weeks with a shoulder injury and was coming back to take his place um, as a starting shortstop. And Messina was starting that game, and I remember him saying to me two days before, he says, we can put on the uniform and we can play in the stadium, but we're not the New York Yankees unless Derek Jeter is playing shortstop. You know, I've given him credit for this. I think it should be chiseled in granite in Monument Park, but it feels like Aaron Judge is now taking over that same perception, whether it's inside the clubhouse, in the front office, or in the stands. He's the guy that if he's not there, it's not the same team. Oh, I think the Yankees learned that the hard way last year when he was on the disabled list for seven weeks. They weren't the same team. Um, and you could change. You see the change immediately the day he came off the disabled list last yeah. year. There was just, and uh, there's a, a surge in energy and intensity because Aaron Judge was there, and he has this quality about him. And I mean, I've been covering baseball long enough to remember what Keith Hernandez did for the Mets in the late '80s. Mm-hmm. He has this sort of John Wayne quality about him that players around him are better. They just play harder because. Keith was next to them, you know, in the foxhole. I mean, I hate using that <laughs> analogy, but it's true. And and Judge has that as well. There's something serious and um, very competitive about him. Uh, there's a leadership about him. You want to play better because he's he's next to you. Now, he's only in his, his fourth year. I mean, he has, you know, he doesn't have the same credentials yet that Keith Hernandez did, you know, in the 80s. But I think Judge is going to get there. I think he is going to be, to me, as he continues to evolve, he'll be a the next Miguel Cabrera in terms of performance. A power hitter with a high average who's, and he's even more of a leader. So I see nothing but good things on his trend line. This might be unfair, but when you play for the Yankees, you're held to standards that other people on other teams don't have the luxury of. Almost every great, great Yankee player won a championship very early in their career. You go back and say DiMaggio, Mantle, Derek Jeter, multiple championships early in their career. Thurman Munson, Don Mattingly, the two guys I can think of that, you know, Munson had to wait and Mattingly never got one. But that's a weight that I think is on Aaron Judge right now, especially when his team is good and competitive. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you make your mark by what you do in October. And uh, the Yankees, I mean, there's some things the Yankees have to do to get there, to get Judge there. I personally think they have to strike out less. They have to be better at situational hitting. They have to borrow a little a page from the Red Sox. Not this year's Red Sox are not last playing well, but last year's Red Sox. I mean, they specifically worked on yeah. two-strike hitting and going the other way. And I've talked to Judge about this, about the strikeouts, and his philosophy is, and it's shared throughout the game, a strikeout is an out. Yeah. You know, again, I go far swing enough. Swing hard. Take your best swing every time. Absolutely. Don't cut down because it diminishes your chance of doing what you really want to do, which is to send the ball over the fence. 
But again, I come back, I, I go all the way back to an era when players were embarrassed to strike out more than they walked in the course mm -hmm. of season. I mean, it was, a, it was a demerit against you. Now, Judge says to me, when I strike out, I don't go back to the dugout thinking I had failed on that last, on strike three. I go over the entire at bat. Did I miss a pitch on 0-1? Did I, how did I put myself in position where I was now missing strike three? So let, let me think about the first three or four pitches of the at bat instead. But, you know, that philosophy of swing hard, get your best swing, may work during the season. You'll, sw you'll hit a ton of home runs. But when you're facing quality pitching in October, you know, you're going to get shut down. And I think there has to be some tweaking in that philosophy. And Judge has to be part of it as well. To me, the meat of this book is probably what you described as Brian Cashman spreading out the credit. It's the inner workings of player development, where the Yankees spend tens of millions of dollars and it's invested with no penalty against them, like the payroll is. You know, I know that how much the Yankees hate subsidizing their competition when it comes to those payroll numbers, but this is something where they are far outspending every other team. I've talked to scouts who say, I've, I'm someplace, the Yankees have eight other guys covering the same areas that I'm covering internationally. And you dove a little bit into the idea of these 16, 17, 18-year-old kids from the Latin American countries who are, they're not just being trained to play baseball, they're being trained to, to be New York Yankees. Right, and the Yankees started from scratch in this because the philosophy you know, in George's day was to cover up any mistakes or any deficits with money. Just write a check to a free agent, you know, even if he's in late prime or in his 30s and not worry about, you know, the flame out, which would come after three or four years. I mean, there was literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars wasted mm -hmm. because of that business model. I mean, the rest of the game, the rest of the industry moved on. I mean, that's just not how you, you run a baseball team anymore. The Yankees were the last ones to this party. But Brian Cashman realized, and it took George's passing for, for this philosophy to evolve, mm -hmm. but Brian realized that you have to spend money on infrastructure, on more on scouting and, and player development and advanced analytics. So I, I went down to Tampa for a couple of days to talk to, to, to this academy, to this school, this really literally night school. In the daytime, these kids from the Dominican and from Venezuela and uh, all the other Latin countries, they come, they play. And at night, they learn how to read and write. And I'm not just talking about English. Yeah. Many of them come to this country without even knowing how to read and write Spanish. Yeah. Kids with third grade educations, kids who come from towns in the Dominican that have no electricity. So the Yankees, the Yankees, the core, the, the core mission here is to bring ball players who are well-rounded adults who can who are mature enough to play in New York, talk to the media, uh, be able to to go to a restaurant and order food in English, to know how to write a check or to use an ATM, to actually to know how to behave on a date and you know, for rules that they've never had they've never had imparted upon them. Just learn how to become a member of society. Now, whether these kids make it or not, and most of them won't get past double A, the Yankees tie the knot by saying by promising tuition paid for a college education when you go back to the country. All you have to do is ask and we will pay. That's how progressive and enlightened the Yankees have become. And for that, you can only thank Brian Cashman. And the other side of it that you touched on was, you know, building the mental conditioning, teaching the nutritional values to these guys that don't have any of those in their own lives going in. You know, a lot of teams have academies, you know, and they teach you baseball. You know, the Yankees are investing in the whole tree, not just a couple of pieces of fruit. Absolutely. And, it's, you know, it's funny. I'm glad you mentioned the nutrition because I forgot about that. I mean, there is a dining area in this academy in Tampa where 
fresh fruit is fresh food is prepared for these players every day. All you have to do is go into the huge refrigerator and take your you take your plate. And they also teach kids how to cook. Mm-hmm. What they really want to avoid is everybody going right to Burger King yeah. right after workout and wolfing down five you know whoppers. You know, mm-hmm. just that era is over. You know, for players and drinking beer and I mean. Players today are expected to be in shape all year round, come to camp in shape. You know, nobody works off winter fat anymore. That's just another yeah. error altogether. But it's just making players aware, <coughs> excuse me, making players aware that how you eat has a direct correlation to how you perform on the field. And if you want to get ahead, then you got to put the right fuel in your body. Giancarlo Stanton is a pretty key figure in your book because, as you described earlier, his acquisition kind of moved the bar for the Yankees. Uh, bringing, bringing this big figure and kind of pushing the timetable up a little bit. But I feel like watching Stanton and, and who he is as a player and as a person kind of fitting in here, he seems to be a guy, because of the big price tag and the heavy expectations, he's never going to be loved here. At best, he's going to be appreciated. And that's only if he wins a ring. I mean, Alex Rodriguez is kind of in the same boat. I mean, Alex was never loved here. At, he is appreciated for 2009 and very little else around here. Uh, Stanton doesn't seem to be an easy guy to get to know. Maybe it's because all these things are on his shoulders, but you made a connection in a unique way with him, but it seems like you were able to get a little bit more of a peek inside him than the rest of us were. Uh, yes, let me, and let me backtrack by answering your first question. He is a tough nut to crack. He has this really imposing vibe. You know, they kind of just what, walk. Six, seven, six, two, seven. eight. Why would, why and, would that be imposing? And plus, he looks like he's angry. When he's <laughs> yeah. not, he, that's yeah. just the way his features are arranged. He mm-hmm. looks like he's just pissed off at somebody. Yeah. So a lot of reporters are afraid to go up to him one-on-one. They mm-hmm. prefer to do it in a pack after the game. But I have found that, that, he's, that Giancarlo is a, a thoughtful guy. And if you come to him on a, with a subject or a question that makes him think or cuts beneath the surface a little bit, mm-hmm. there is a very, very enlightened young man. And... My connection to him was early in spring training. Well, first of all, I came to research the, the trade with Jeter mm-hmm. and how angry he was at the way the Marlins handled that. Um, but on a more personal level, you know, we ended up talking about how he got beamed in 2014. And I related to myself, you know, I got hit in the face with a batted ball in, in 2009 playing in a, in a semi-pro league in, in New Jersey. And I said to him, I know what you what that felt like. I know what that moment of impact is like and how it sounds like there's a stick of dynamite going off in your head, how loud it is and how terrible it is. And from that moment forward, he said, yeah, so you understand. And we sort of compared notes on on the facial trauma and having all the bones in your face broken. And, you know, in my case, you know, I had uh, my cheekbone was broken, my my, my eyebrow was broken, my orbital bones were broken, my retina was detached. I mean, just about everything that could be broken was broken by this ball. It took several surgeries to put me back together, including regaining my vision. But I'm a writer, and if my baseball career couldn't move forward, so what? Mm -hmm. Stanton had to go back into the batter's box the next year, and he had to do it without fear. And that's where we started our conversation. How do you do that? When you know the pitchers who don't intend to hurt you, it's not their intent. That's not what they want to do, but they're going to pitch you up and in to see if you're afraid. And if you have a little bit of fear, a sliver of fear of that ball, your career is over. And that's what Stanton said to himself. I either do this 100% or I might as well just retire today. So not only did we talk about getting over the fear, but just a description of how his injury 
manifested and how to this day he still has some permanent damage, nerve, nerve damage in his face, which he doesn't talk about to anybody. But there's a little clue, which I'm not going to give away because it's in the book. There's a little clue that if you look closely, you can see what he's talking about that he lives with to this day. Stanton's arrival is part of the reason, part of the reason that the Yankees didn't dive deeper into free agency this winter. Bryce Harper was available. The Yankees made a big outfield expenditure the year before, taking on his contract. As I'm reading through the book, there are little, you know, and I'm curious as to when these portions were written. You seem convinced that at some point over the winter, the Yankees are going to go after and land either Bryce Harper or Manny Machado or, uh, and, and make a big splash. But there was something about the meeting that you had with Brian Cashman to go over the season again five days after it ended that, as I read it, said, hmm, something gave you pause as to their plan where the six months prior to that, you were convinced that they were going after one of those guys. It was with that meeting right after the, the Yankees lost to the Red Sox in the division series. Now, if I was a newspaper reporter at that yeah. time, I would have been sitting on a hot story because I knew the Yankees weren't going to be going after either one. Certainly, they just didn't buy into Bryce Harper. Not for 10 years, not for $300 bucks. I mean, mm-hmm. Brian Cashman's no fool. If, if Harper had cut his price in half or his years in half, the Yankees would have jumped on it. But not, not at that cost. Second of all, there was even there was even less interest in Machado. So the Yankees just did not want to put a player of that stature in a room without a guarantee that he was going to play hard every day because it would have been a threat to Aaron Boone's authority. Boone is a nice, he's an effective manager, but he's not a hard ass. It would have been a difficult situation for him to 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 come down hard on Machado. Second of all, it would have also encroached on on Aaron Judge's leadership in the clubhouse to have a superstar who didn't play hard every day. And third. It would have been a they would have had a corrosive effect on the young Latin players, specifically Gary Sanchez, who the Yankees are still trying to motivate. They're still trying to find the way to spark him. Mm-hmm. Putting Machado in the next locker would have been would have would have doomed him, and that extends also to Gleyber Torres and, and Miggy Andujar. You know, as and the the dilemma here is that the Yankees analytics people loved both players right. and were able to make a very convincing and persuasive argument that. We can work on the on the clubhouse stuff. That's why we have a manager. But there's nobody out there who can give us the run production that these guys can, and that's what we're missing. Now, they have a really influential vote. And Brian was a little worried that they he would get outvoted on this. Ultimately, he prevailed. He really believes in his clubhouse. And they believe, he made two other counterarguments to that. One, Gary Sanchez has nowhere to go except up after hitting 186 last year. He cannot be this bad. They couldn't be... 100% wrong about him. So they're counting on more. And two, Stanton is going to be a better player because it's his second year. Just like every other star who comes here, year one is a struggle. And number three, you just have to assume that Aaron Judge is not going to spend seven weeks on the DL again. So it's going to be a better team. You don't have to have Machado or Harper here to realize that. The... Um there's one other thing that stuck out to me about the book. It's time to, and I enjoyed it tremendously. And I hope people go out there and buy it anywhere you buy books. It's called Inside the Empire: The True Power Behind the New York Yankees. Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, Bob Klapish, and Paul Solitaroff, uh, the co-authors of this. I noticed how you crush sports radio in this for killing, for killing the newspaper man's quotes and sanitizing every player. You put it all on us, but here I am helping you sell books right now. Do you really want to go down that road? 
Well, listen, <laughs> two things. First of all, we're not talking about you because I'm not talking about reporters who actually do the legwork. The, the indictment is of talk show hosts who are uninformed and overreactive. I'm, I'm a good teammate. I'm going to stick up for my teammate and my company and say it's technology takes you certain places. You kind of have to roll with it. Maybe that's a bad byproduct of it, but I don't think we are solely to blame for the breakdown in the writer-player relationship. There's no question it's now multi-layered. And I would say now Twitter has done more to damage. Completely. Social media has done more to damage the relationship between mm-hmm. the media and, and players, reporters and players more than anything. But I will say I was there at the very beginning. You know, I was there. I predated WFAN, mm-hmm. you know, when, and back when newspapers were the only way fans could have a, a, an insight or conduit to the yeah. clubhouse. We were very necessary. And suddenly talk radio comes along, FAN, and not only is it another medium, but it allows it allows the fans to become Steinbrenners. Right. The, you know, they mm-hmm. give them a voice, Correct. and the players were shocked yeah. at how critical the responses were and how harsh some fans were. And that's when they began to say to themselves, why should we even talk to these guys? Why do we even expose ourselves? And little by little, that gulf widened and... You know, today it's really more Twitter than anything else, much mm-hmm. more than talk radio. But it did begin with talk radio. Yeah. Well, and talk radio is here to help sell your books. So I hope you appreciate that. Uh, oh my God, I'm, I'm writing you a check after we're done. Um, what's your What's your follow up plan to this? I mean, it didn't turn into the championship season that you had hoped would would obviously pump up the story more. Um, is there a plan to follow this path along, or was this basically let's tell a story about how Brian Cashman is now running the Yankees? Well, the book would have been sunk had the Yankees lost to the A's in the wild card hmm. playoff. I mean, it would have been hard to justify a book about you know this new revolution. I thought I saw you sweating. I believe me, I was soaked. <laughs> you know, had they lost hmm. to the A's, and the book loses its legitimacy. Hmm. But you know, they did prevail, and they did lose to the team that won won it all. It won 108 games. It was just a Red Sox year. Nobody saw that coming. There's no shame in, in finishing second to the Red Sox in 2018. Um, I do think the Yankees will close the gap on the Red Sox this year. What happened in Boston last year happens once in a generation. I don't see a repeat of that. I do think the Yankees will be better for the reasons I said. You know, with a couple of caveats, you know, they have to answer several questions in the affirmative. Is Severino healthy? Uh, Is Gary Sanchez better than 186? Um, You know, they've had a run of injuries now, which are a little concerning. I mean, is Aaron Hicks ever going to get back on the field? Um, What's Didi Gregorius going to be like when he comes back? If those question marks are answered in the affirmative, I do see the Yankees going to the World Series. And contractually, this book has a paperback due sure. next year. Mm-hmm. It's coming out at this time in 2020, so there'll be another chapter added. You know, hopefully, it'll be about a World Series. In the meantime, I'm writing for the New York Times this year, so that's my job for now. And congratulations on that. I should have mentioned that up front too, because uh, long time with the with the record. And uh, now uh, part of the team at the New York Times this year. Congratulations on that. We all look forward to that. It's called Inside the Empire, the true power behind the New York Yankees. Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, Bob Clappish, and Paul Solitaroff. Uh, special edition here of 30 with Murdy to talk about the book. Thank you all for listening. We'll catch you next time. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. 
You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.